Welcome to the Untitled Art Podcast, recorded live at the 12th edition of Untitled Art in Miami Beach. My name is Anichka, and I do exhibitor relations and communications with the team here at Untitled Art. This year is a very special for year for us because we have welcomed the Sotheby's Institute of Art on board as our first ever education partner. Since its inception, using the fair as a platform for discovering art in accessible and engaging opportunities has been at Untitled Art core mission, and it has been a pleasure collaborating with the SIA team. The Institute has campuses in New York and London and is one of the world's leading institutions for the study of art business and object-based study of art. In conjunction with their programmatic partnership, a quick note to all listeners that SIA is offering our audience a discount on their professional courses, both online and in person. Make sure to check out our post on Instagram and updates we've sent via newsletter. Now let's get into it. Recording live today, the Institute has curated a suite of three discussions with industry experts in line with Untitled Arts 2023 curatorial themes, gender equality in the arts, and curating in the digital age. And introduced to you, our moderator and panelists, I am delighted to introduce Janine Catalano, Director of Alumni Relations and Strategic Partnerships. Thank you very much. We're delighted to be the education partner of Untitled Art this year and participating in their programming strand with these three podcasts. Um, so for the third panel today on changes to collecting models, I am delighted to introduce our moderator, Claudia Ofwana Draber. Claudia is a curator and the founder of CODA, a social practice residency for mid-career artists, which she wrote the business plan for during her MA in art business from Sotheby's Institute of Art, New York, where she is now on the faculty for the MA in art business. She has also led arts, technology, and strategy projects in Europe, Africa, and the U.S., and her professional experience includes working as the head of PR at the Polish Cultural Institute New York and as a consultant to the British Council of Arts. She also worked at UBS, managing global change and local arts CSR projects. Claudia was the 2021 to 22 Helena Rubinstein Foundation at the Whitney ISP Curatorial Studies Program and mentors at Art Table and New Museums New Inc. She also holds an MA in Economics from the Warsaw School of Economics. It's my pleasure to turn over to Claudia to introduce the rest of our panel. Thank you. Thank you so much, Janine. Um, and hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Welcome to the Changes to Collecting Models panel discussion as at, at Untitled, organized in partnership with Sotheby's Institute of Art. Um, as mentioned, I'm Claudio von Adraber, and I am delighted to be in conversation today with Amanda Uribe, who is the founder of Latchkey Gallery, and with Ilya Friedman, who is the founder of Friedman Gallery. Uh, recent, recent years have brought rapid changes to the way art is shown, shared, and sold. Um, I, the two gallerists who I'm in conversation with today are exhibiting at Untitled, so please make sure to check out their um, presentations and we'll speak about, a bit about them as well. Let me make some Longer introductions, so short, and then we'll jump into questions. And at the end, I'll leave a few minutes for a Q&A if you have any questions. 
So Amanda Uribe founded Lachki Gallery in 2018. That is five years ago. The gallery is located on Henry Street in New York. Amanda supports emerging artists who challenge historical narratives, helping shape cultural conversations to create a more diverse and dynamic society that reflects the complexity of our world. And Ilya founded uh, Friedman Gallery in 2013, that is 10 years ago. Uh, the gallery is loca located on Bowery in New York. Ilya represents artists working across disciplines from painting and sculpture to video and sound art. The gallery runs an artist residency, hosts performances, publishes artist books, and releases vinyl records. Thank you, Amanda and Ilya, for your time today. I'm very happy for this conversation about changes to collecting models. Um, with that, I wanted to start um, with evolution over time, because both of your galleries have a program that is critical, that questions established narratives and promotes critical inquiry. We see social justice and we see installations and conceptual art. Traditionally, these are not commercial artworks. So please tell us about how have your program, has your program evolved over the past five and 10 years respectively in response to observed changes in collecting? Well, uh, thank you, Claudia. And I'm very happy to be in conversation with Amanda. I feel like we're soulmates in a way in the art world. Um, I started the gallery as a kind of quixotic attempt to combine under one roof what I saw as two diverging definition of what art is or can be. For a lot of people, art is the world of collectible objects, more and more exemplified by art fairs like this one. And then there is a whole other um, not so overtly commercial art world, let's say, um, which is comprised of institutions and academia and publications and curators um, who do not necessarily take guidance from the art market. For them, art is more of an inquiry or education or social practice, innovation, research-based practice, etc. And I saw those two art worlds really not speaking to each other very much. Uh, and I wanted to create a space where they could be co-represented, if you will. Um, it took me about five years to add the first painter to our roster. Uh, initially, I really wanted to give space to uh, video and sound and performance artists, artists who don't necessarily see the light of day in commercial galleries because, well, they need to pay rent in New York City especially. Um, for those five years, I supported my gallery by practicing law full-time. And so I could afford to not worry about sales so much. But eventually, it dawned on me that the gallery will be stronger and actually fulfill my mission of combining the two sides of the art world better if we were su commercially successful. And so... Uh, we started showing at art fairs. We started balancing the program with 
paintings and works on paper and things that are easier to collect. Um, and here we are at Untitled with a presentation of seven painters, essentially. Um, but I really do believe that time-based media and multimedia works uh, and more challenging sort of narratives can also be collected and need to be seen not only in museums, but at commercial galleries as well. And Amanda, congratulations on your five years, because apparently uh, after five years, that's when it starts for the galleries. That's what they say. <laughs> um, I think my... I started Latchkey out of frustration, to be honest with you. I had been working for a gallery in Chelsea, presenting them many artists that I was passionate about, um, that I wanted their works to be seen and the conversations that were, they were having to be seen in, in this gallery. And I was just getting so much pushback. And during that time, I had developed such close friendships with these artists as well that really my reaction was just like, I'm just gonna open my own gallery. I've been doing this long enough. I can make this happen. And it was basically January that I just was like, okay, let's give this a try. Um, and in the beginning, it was friends. It was friends that I really believed in, friends whose work I felt had to be not only seen, but their voices needed to be heard. Um, and then over the years, these friends have taken off and are doing amazing, amazing things. One of them is Nate Lewis. Um, and I'm, I was a, a start, a starter platform for many of them. And I'm very proud to see where they are now. Um, and in that time I've developed new friendships and have been introduced to other artists. And when it comes to what I gravitate towards, because at the end of the day, I don't know if you would agree. It's almost like a, it's almost in my opinion, selfish what you show, because it's what you want to see. It's like what I believe in as an individual. Um, so, you know, as the last five years, as things have evolved, not only in my thought process and what I'm looking to learn and grow from and what's happening in the world, you know, so I've sort of began, you know, going outside of just, just my friends and looking to artists who are having other conversations about the environment, about, of course, social justice. And, and that's how I've sort of been channeling the gallery basically what is it that's happening in the world right now that we should be talking about that should be common practice when you're sitting down and talking to collectors or other people giving them new perspectives and also for me to learn more through these artists so it's selfish in a way but you need to be conscious of the market in order to be able to support the artists uh, that you are working with and more artists um how do you set up your pro how do you set up your program, uh, having in mind the collector profile? So for me, I set it for, um, I look at the year ahead. Because yes, I do work with artists that are not as commercially viable as others. And so when I'm mapping out my year ahead, I'm also mapping out the financial year ahead. And, you know, this artist historically has brought in X amount, whereas... This artist, I don't really know what the reaction's gonna be, but I'm gonna give it a try because I have the support of the artist before that. So I'm constantly, and I think all dealers are juggling. You know, it's a hard business. It's not, it's not an easy business, it's a passion. I think that's something that all dealers share is that we are passionate about this. It 
somehow fulfills our souls. Um, because if it doesn't, then why are we doing it? And so, yeah, I mean, you have to map out the year ahead. But yeah, if it was all about money, I would have stayed a lawyer. Um, so I do something similar, I suppose. It's a balance between shows I expect to be, um, if not sellouts, then, you know, uh, bring in sufficient income to cover our costs and shows that are experiments that are innovative, um, that do something maybe for the future and maybe to, prom to enhance our institutional relationships and press. And so uh, currently on view at our gallery is a show by Heather Dewey Hagborg, which is called Hybrid and Interspecies Opera. And it's a film in which scientists are singing about genetically modifying pigs to be donors of human organs. Um, so she is making human uh, a subject that is normally reserved for the science sections of newspapers and tech columns and so on. And that is also a role of art and the role of uh, art galleries. And in the case of that artist, we've actually represented her since the beginning of the gallery. We travel her work to museums and museums pay loan fees, artist fees, which we share with the artist. And that's another income model, which is much more incremental and slow but it does pay off over time, I found, if the artist is exceptional. Um, and in every genre, I try to look for not only beauty and conceptual depth, you know, multiple layers of meaning, but also some form of innovation, uh, whether they're combining new materials or it's technical innovation or it's a new approach to research uh, or maybe uh, the background of the artist is such that the work is necessarily new. Um, but I try to find that in all media, really, including painting. And if you go to our booth, B24, um, you will see paintings that are very different from each other, but all qualitatively different um, in their own way. And... So we see more and more painting that you are showing. And how has, have things changed in the last year? Uh, 2023, we are... You know, I have a lot to say. Maybe, <laughs> maybe coming out of the pandemic. Uh, what, what's, what's happening? More paintings. No. More paintings. <laughs> it's true, it's true. No, um, I think the conversation of... It's been a tough year to be honest. And I think the more we talk to each other more openly, we can all start to admit that it's been, there's a, a, a shift happening in the art world that as dealers and gallery owners, we're very much aware of. And we're also very much aware that paintings sell. And so like you had said, we're, we have to pay rent. And not only do we have to pay rent, we have to pay New York rent, which adds so much more to our overhead, which, you know, going back to the, laying out my schedule for the upcoming year, I need to plan out based on what has financially been going on for the last six months, eight months. So if you look at my year ahead, I'm not going to show that much, dig not digital, but like video art. I'm going to make sure that I can pay my rent and I'm going to show more 
on, you know, for better or for worse, for more paintings for, for this coming year. Um, and hopefully, you know, we go, we go through this every three to five years, there's a shift in the art market. And for a period of time, you know, collectors are trying to figure it out. We're trying to figure it out. And then we get back into that rhythm. And so I think we all just, you know, are, as we continue to do this, you get more prepared for that time period that we're hopefully getting out of. We'll see. And Ilya, for you, um, what are the challenges faced in the recent year? Yeah, so sales have slowed down after uh, the pandemic. It seems that there was a spike in commercial activity when people were at home with more time and wall space on their hands um, and maybe disposable income. And I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but also I, like when I was talking to collectors during that time, they were so aware of how fragile our, you know, our ecosystem was. So I had gotten a lot of conversations about like, we want to make sure that you are all supported. Did that happen? For, like, did you have those conversations? Uh, they, they asked me how we were doing. I didn't hear from them the expressed desire to keep us afloat, but maybe that's what they meant. Um, but yes, it was, it was an interesting moment when uh, you would think that art being a form of you know, social interaction and a kind of subgenre of entertainment uh, would suffer with COVID, but it, kind of the opposite was the case for art, many art galleries. Um, especially those who already had a collector base they could market to remotely and uh, digitally. Uh, so that was nice, and then we came out of it, and for the past year, uh, it's been a lot more challenging. What I would just say that, yes, we're going to show a lot more art that we think will sell because we have to, but it's really important, I think, to keep the long-term picture in our heads, too, because one of the ways we have sustained our program is through institutional acquisitions, Museums do have budgets or patrons um, that are a bit more immune to market fluctuations. Not always and not entirely, but more so than most private collectors. And so if we stop focusing on innovation and on what is interesting for a museum looking for the next canonical artists, then we will be shooting ourselves in the foot over the long term. And so it's kind of, it still has to be a mix. Maybe the mix changes, but for me, it still has to be a mix. Um, and also I just believe in increasing the spirit in the world. And so we're gonna do a performance festival in January, for example, that doesn't pay rent whatsoever, but um, it's part of our gallery's identity. Um, one thing that the gallery we're doing is that, unfortunately we have, many different rooms in our space. So I've adopted one section of the gallery that will allow me to take more risks. So I have the main exhibition space and then a smaller you know, little apartment area, I call it, where I'll be for this year taking those risks. So the artists won't have, the artists that I would normally take risks for won't have the entire gallery, but they'll have at least a section that I can present to collectors and clients and you know, start introducing them to the, those artists. So in terms of risk taking, what are the opportunities that you see for young collectors? 
I think, I mean, for Latchkey, one of the things that I would like every, like, uh, for me, I work with young emerging artists. And so if you follow the gallery, if you are aware of what we're doing, we're kind of like your stepping stone. We're the first, we're one of the first galleries that will present an artist. And historically, in the last five years, historically is a big word for five years, but historically, um, these artists go on to bigger galleries and they have you know, bigger and brighter careers, which has always been my mission as a gallerist. You know, there's an ecosystem and my, my part of that ecosystem is integral to getting them into Ilya's gallery, to getting them into you know, that next tier. Um, so that's how I see myself, and, and that's something that I will continue doing because that's where I feel, that's where I feel I'm needed. And Ilya, there is that uh, very interesting aspect you mentioned when we were in a conversation earlier with Amanda about the young, the, what the young collector collects is often the same thing that the institution collects. Yeah, I really, to my own surprise, I found that to be uh, true um, because I think museums look for artists who are doing something qualitatively different from their peers, who will occupy a new niche in the art historical canon. Um, and young collectors or emerging collectors, I find, come more and more from the worlds of technology and media and are un definitely um, digital media users, heavy consumers. And so for them, consciously or subconsciously, they also tend to gravitate towards work that is innovative um, because they sort of grew up in that world um, professionally. What's your thoughts on NFTs? Um, NFTs are just like another format to carry media. And in terms of artwork, I find it is really well suited for code-based work, generative work, because one of the only ways to fix it, to keep track of it, is through an NFT. Uh, but otherwise, I don't see the point. Ilya is being very politically correct. <laughs> I'm well, calling. no, I mean... It's true, because like, yeah. like why, why attach an image that already exists in another format to an NFT when you can experience it in that original format? It makes no sense to me. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I'm just going to push you a little bit. <laughs> so with that, um, to dig a bit further into online sales, um, as we all know, art is best experienced in person. And that's why we all traveled here to Miami to see it. Um, but we have seen in a long while, especially since the pandemic, we're in the pandemic, that decisions on acquisitions are being made from JPEGs or on Instagram. So what is your, your experience with online sales via online platforms, on, online viewing rooms and social media? I'm asking that also because I know that both of you run a pretty traditional in-person physical art sale business. There's so much to say. Please, um, tell us. I am overwhelmed by how many different online platforms there are. 
Um, and as a small business, it's like I need a full team just to oversee all the different platforms that are constantly being open and tried. And and I'm, I'm and I do believe in it because I think there it's a great way to be introduced to the artists, be introduced to the galleries. But of course, at the end of the day, you need to see it in person, hands down. Um, but if I'm overwhelmed, I feel like the collector must be. You know, how do you? I don't. I don't see. How do you keep up? How do we keep up? How do they keep up? Um, with that said, I. I mean, I still do the. You know, I, you, you use it as a platform to get them in, to get them started. That's how I see it. I um, do my best to have the collector come into the gallery to see the piece, even if they're coming from an online platform. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a good complement, um, but it doesn't replace the sort of body experience next to the work because what artists at their best are so good at is conveying the aura um, of an object or, or whatever the subject of their work is. And what is an aura? It's, it's like it comes from the word breath, or, or, or wind, breeze from Greek. And that, that has to be experienced in person and that by definition is related to the body of the viewer. Um, that's how we are able to share the perspective of the artist when they made the work. And so can you really follow their hand and can you really relate on your bodily level to the artwork digitally? I'm not so sure. Um, maybe there is a place for like a hybrid gaze so that, you know, and this is where maybe the two ways to expose collectors to art are complementary rather than hierarchical. Um, you know, the hybrid gaze of first seeing it visually and, and processing the story cognitively, and the, but then also experiencing it in person and viscerally maybe that actually completes the picture in the best possible way. So I find that, I find that so interesting because now I'm like, oh, the art historical brain just came in. But like, you know, the age of the mechanical reproduction, right? And that whole idea of artist's aura and how there was a pushback during that time with like photography and prints. And now I'm contradicting what I just said about all of it in that but at that time, the conversation was like, well, you're removing the aura of the art. Um, and then, you know, 15, 20 years later, at what everybody was wrestling about the aura had been, become accepted. So I think what's really happening is like we're in that transitional phase. We're in the new mechanical reproduction. And the idea of aura, I, and listen, for me, art must be experienced. I think that that's, it has to be seen in person. But also, we have to acknowledge the fact that as we're in that shift, probably in 10, 20 years, to see, just to see it on a screen is going to be just as acceptable. And that definition of aura will probably be shifted. Just historically, that's what happens. I don't know. Uh, I think it definitely will happen for digital art because the medium is so compatible with the presentation. But for painting, for sculpture, for installation, I, I feel that it, it, that in-person bodily experience is absolutely necessary because it's the viewer themselves inside the work is what completes the artist's perspective on 
onto, onto the subject. I'm not disagreeing with you, but what, what you're saying, I just had a thought in that when I, when what I find interesting is that during the pandemic, everything was happening digitally. Right. And so when you were talking to collectors and talking to people about the work, you were translating the object in person versus the object in, on the screen. And in my experience over the time, I find that their visual language, the way that they're understanding the art, they're now able to understand how it could possibly look better in person. Like, like when you see a flat plane on the screen, they can now better understand the depth that they're missing out on. Especially if they're familiar with the, especially if they're familiar with the artist's work uh, already. Well, so Nate Lewis is case in point. He's so um, handmade and process-based. He carves photographs with a knife, uh, creating these incredible textures uh, really have to be seen up close uh, to appreciate the skill, the time, and the poetry of it. Um, when we were about to open his first solo show in March of 2020, COVID had just hit. Uh, the Armory show just closed and New York was shut down. And we had his opening, which luckily did not become a super spreader. Um, I was there. But <laughs> I'm, I'm glad then, it didn't. <laughs> then, then very quickly had to think of how to present the work of this incredible artist, uh, a major seminal event in his career to the audience that could no longer see it in person. And so we created one of the first multimedia viewing rooms um, which combined the soundscape that he, that he created for the show, this eight-speaker uh, sound installation, with the two-channel video that he also had made for the first time in, in his career, um, and with the detail of that highly handmade work as a kind of scrolling, um, immersive experience on our website. And, and, and it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't do the exhibition justice, but it, it took some steps towards appreciating at least what the artist was trying to do. But also, it blew up on Instagram. The opening was a huge success, and that Instagram was all over the place. And I'm sure that actually, and, and talk, like bringing in the conversation about Instagram, that was also probably a major factor is that like everybody was home, everybody was, and that was, I mean, I was constantly getting bombarded by photographs of the opening, of people taking pictures of the piece, of him. And I think that was another added bonus to everything that you also did. Well, that, that so that goes a long way for, to, to market the work. But, but if we're talking about how to appreciate what is special and innovative about it and how to get the perspective that the artist was trying to communicate, then you have to do more than just, you know, social media marketing. And then, by the way, fast forward. But do you? Well, we, with those viewing rooms, we try, yes. No, I mean, and they were beautiful. And I do believe in the viewing room. But um, I'm just saying, like, there was many, like, many things that made that, at the end, very successful. Yeah, no. And people understood it. And it was almost validated even further 
by the fact that like it took over Instagram? Um, Elian knows my I think, personality. I think, I think it's uh, it's all cumulative. It's nice uh, when it works hand in hand. Uh, and by the way, fast forward to this week, and we have here uh, one of the partners for this fair is Vortic, which is a new virtual reality art experience platform. Um, and we designed a viewing room on their platform uh, for this fair. And it's actually a beautiful visual experience, uh, which is available at their booth in VR, but also on uh, the websites of the participating galleries uh, uh, as just uh, an on-screen experience. And they place artworks at scale inside uh, three-dimensional rooms so you can actually at least imagine your body next to them. But isn't that interesting that we're learning, our brains are being better understood how to approach these. Because at the end of the day, as much as it's, you can walk through it virtually, it's still flat. But from the pandemic to now, we are able to understand in more detail how to break down what's actually happening on the canvas, for example. So second to last question, uh, because I want to dig a bit further into that aspect, you know, hopefully, and Nate Lewis's opening at your gallery, Ilya, was the last thing I saw before the lockdown. So that's true that you probably got some extra marketing from all of that. And it was, of course, beautiful work and great success. And um, hopefully digitization, finan financialization, helps uh, with transparency, increasing transparency in the art market. But I am curious also about the education aspect of it. Both of your galleries are very focused on that. So tell us more uh, about what role does your gallery take in education and how young collectors can benefit from that program? I'm a t I like to talk. So I like to... Um Education is very important to me. I like to have different programs. I like to bring in new perspectives of the artwork. So it's not just the artists or just me talking about it, but poets and dancers and writers. Um, so we have different events constantly that circle around our exhibitions to add a perspective to the concepts that are in the art. Um, also for me, community, and that's like a buzzword, but the surrounding community of Henry Street is also very important to me. And so I actually have a lot of um, students come into the, to the gallery. And I love that because it's in a, one of the earlier, more intimate interactions with art. And I think oftentimes because I work with artists of various backgrounds, a lot of times the students that are coming in get to see more of themselves in the artwork than they would necessarily see in museums, although that has changed in the last five years. But in the beginning, I've, I found that very fulfilling. And it's even more fulfilling now to see those changes in museums. Um, so for me, yeah, and also because I'm interested in having conversations and poking ideas and learning from artists and learning from different people and gathering these perspectives, I think it's also very important to um, facilitate those conversations inside the gallery. So those are all very important to me. Yeah, totally. Uh, we also have um, many BFA, MFA student groups come to the shows, their professors bring them. 
we host collector events uh, where we try to introduce the artists to the collector and there's really no better experience to learn about art than in the artist studio because you hear them talk about their thought process while seeing uh, how the work is made and the most successful art is it, or, or even the most successful art object is one that marries the concept and the execution and the two reinforce each other so there's a reason why you know Nate Lewis since we're using him as an example throughout Nate's gonna this talk, love this um, you know he uses an ex a, a, a carving knife because he was a registered nurse and it's about the body and it's about um, uncovering hidden anatomies in uh, society and in the universe and so that that is marriage of concept and medium and technique that you know you cannot really experience outside of an artist's studio if you will and the more the collector comes closer to that um, almost like um, educational seminar with the artists themselves the, 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 the better off they are so thinking about hopefully the very immediate future uh, what is your presentation at Untitled and what types of collections do you envision the work that you're presenting in uh, so right now I'm showing Ivelisse Jimenez and Priyana Bass they're both um Color theorists, Ivelisse works with a lot of assemblage. Brianna is a mathematical genius who incorporates math into her canvases. It's a very colorful experience, so I encourage everyone to come and check us out. Um, what I would love for them, and I remember I'm a younger gallery, so I don't have as much institutional contacts as Ilya does but I'm going to put it out in the ether and say I would love to see both of them in more museums because Ivelisse has been in many museums she's in part of many different collections um, but it, more is always better on my end and um, definitely just more institutions for them I think and that's where Ilya comes in to help me always happy to I, I really believe in collaborating by the way and we've been collaborating with other galleries uh, on if you will, co-representing artists for some years now. Um, so we have a presentation of uh, seven artists. Um, most of the works are paintings. All, all of them are about distant or abstracted or a veiled figure in various ways as a way to get away from literal figuration and more into what is the mythological or the psychological connotation uh, of, for the subject. And in that way, through various techniques, each artist um, builds a bridge between figuration and abstraction, if you will, which I think is going to be important uh, as a kind of hybrid uh, genre um, more and more. I think we live in like this time of hybridity, hybrid media, hybrid pigs. And um, 
kind of hybrid subject matter. Thank you. What I think I loved the most was that aura exam example and idea about experiencing the work and its aura in person uh, and about the education and bringing the community together around the artworks and conversations about the important themes in especially non-commercial art uh, and how it is possible for that art to be in institutional collections and to be in individuals' homes um, as well. So I would like to thank you for your time. If there's one or two questions in the, in the audience, we can take them. I was just going to ask very quickly if you had one uh, do and one don't that you would advise somebody just starting out and collecting, uh, what would those be? Do you believe in your instinct? Don't follow trends. I hate that word. Um, I guess do your research um, about the artist and about uh, predecessors to that artist. We do see a lot of, um, you know, work that that is derivative in, in some way. Um, and as a collector, if you want uh, the piece to not only look pretty on your wall, but also be a good investment, uh, it really pays to buy works that are truly original. Um, so do that. And... I'm going to repeat that. Due diligence is priceless. Yeah, I really enjoy that both of you said totally conflicting things. Listen to your instincts, do your research. So everyone listening to this panel will be more confused than ever, but which is fine. It's a good place. I just wanted to pick a bone because digital art kind of came across as if it would be all about disembodiment. And it, we know it's not true, because a lot of the commercialized digital projects are trying to recreate a full bodily immersion. So what we think of that, that's another debate. Right? But it's really interesting that how digital art, um, and not the best of digital art, unfortunately, started to colonize the body. So you know, the commercial fungo immersive experience, etc., etc. So I think that when we use the word digital projects, we have to be more distinctive. It's becoming like painting or drawing or printmaking that saying something digital is no longer cut it as an umbrella term because during the past 10 years, we have seen the rise of an incredible diversification. So I said, it's not a question, it's a bone to pick, but it was a pleasure to listening to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Ilya. Thank you, everyone. Enjoy. Thank you. Untitled. <laughs>